Hello everyone and welcome to the Connecting Care podcast series where we provide insights into the world of sepsis and the deteriorating patient across Europe. My name is Claire Ratcliffe and I'm the Medical Manager for Patient Monitoring and the Deteriorating Patient in Western Europe for Baxter. Baxter is committed to supporting patients and healthcare professionals with innovations that are driven by compassion for their journeys, a passion to improve care and the ambition to transform the future of healthcare. The Baxter Podcast Programme is the new way for you to hear from your colleagues across the world. And in this episode today, I will be interviewing Dr Ron Daniels, Chief Executive of the UK Sepsis Trust. Firstly, welcome Ron, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, Dr Daniels is an NHS consultant in intensive care based in Birmingham. As well as being the Chief Executive Director of the UK Sepsis Trust, he's also the Vice President of the Global Sepsis Alliance. He's an expert on the subject of sepsis and will share with us today his insights into new international guidelines and their implementation. Well, that's very kind, Claire. And yes, I am all of those things. But most importantly is the first thing you said. I'm a passionate NHS intensive care doctor, so I see sepsis every day. Could we start with a couple of questions first, of Ron? So could you please remind us what proportion um, of people are presenting to healthcare diagnosed with sepsis? So if we look at the data from the UK, and there's no reason to suspect that other higher income countries will be any different. In the UK, we see between four and four and a half million people admitted to hospital every year with a variation in different conditions. In terms of people with infection, we know that people with time critical infections, things like pneumonia and urinary infection, that's about 1.7 million people every year. So give or take, it's around 40% of the NHS workload. And of course, some of those people will go on to develop sepsis. We estimate sepsis to affect about 245,000 people every year in the UK, with about 48,000 people losing their lives. And on that point, what's the average rate of mortality? And I know it's difficult with sepsis and ICD coding. Mm. What does that mortality rate average look like? Well, you're quite right. These are estimates. But looking at some of the studies in the academic literature, if we go back a decade before most of the work on sepsis came about, the survival rates were about 70%, mortality rate around 30%. Mm -hmm. In countries like the UK, we're now seeing survival rates higher at 80%, but still 20% of people die, and that's still too many. In comparison to other diseases, for instance, some of the cancers, what does that sort of look like, Rod? Well, in terms of the numbers, um, we can look at, for example, breast cancer. And again, in a country with a population similar to the UK, we'd expect to see somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people die every year of breast cancer. And of course, we need to improve outcomes from that condition. Bowel cancer is usually slightly more. In the UK, it's around 16,000 people die from, breast can uh, from bowel cancer. So sepsis, we can say, claims more lives than breast cancer and bowel cancer and prostate cancer put together. But of course, it's important to note that sometimes these conditions coexist. And one example would be someone who had chemotherapy for breast cancer mm -hmm. and die of neutropenic sepsis. Ron, you mentioned the figure of 245,000 patients in the UK. What does that look like globally? Well, I think we need to, it's important that we make a distinction between higher income countries and lower income countries or low to middle income countries. If you're living in a country with a similar size population to the UK and a moderately high income, so countries like France, Germany, Spain, uh, Italy, then broadly you will see a similar number of cases. So those countries I'd expect to see around 245,000 cases and around 48,000 people dying. But globally, 
it's bigger than that. And that's because the incidence in low to middle income countries is a lot higher and the mortality rate is a lot higher. So just before the pandemic hit the UK, in January of 2020, the Institute for Health Metrics Evaluation issued their latest estimates on the burden of sepsis. And they estimated that sepsis affects 49 million people around the world every year, claiming 11 million lives. Now, I've got two further things to say on that. Firstly, there's a disproportionate affectation of children under five in resource-poor countries. So frighteningly, they estimated that of those 11 million people dying, one in three were children under five in resource-poor environments. And the second thing is context. You know, we know that ischemic heart disease, according to CDC data, affects, claims around 7.2 million lives every year. We know that cancer claims around 8 million lives every year, according to WHO data. And at the time of recording, COVID-19 has claimed around 6.5 million lives. So think of this, sepsis claims 11 million lives every year. That's more than the claim by ischemic heart disease, by cancer, as a consequence of tobacco use, and so far with COVID-19. So it's a huge issue. And it's that quantum that prompted the Director General of the WHO, Dr Tedros, to issue a press release to governments during the pandemic in September 2020, saying that sepsis it claims one in five lives worldwide and we need to act now to reduce this burden. Ron, would you kindly explain post-sepsis syndrome? I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because if we didn't talk about that, we'd be doing a disservice to the thousands of people every year developing post-sepsis syndrome in each country. It's too easy when we talk about sepsis to talk about the stats in terms of life and death. It's almost that it's binary. And we've talked about 48,000 people dying in the UK, which leaves around 200,000 people surviving. But the reality is there can be a burden of survival. And in around 40% of people who survive sepsis, so in the UK, that's 80,000 people every year, there is a burden. And they will suffer after effects lasting for a year or more in one of three domains. There will be psychological, which can reign from relatively minor, relatively benign, things like the occasional flashback or disturbed sleep, through to PTSD, which we see in about a fifth of patients. They can be physical. Now, they can be obvious. You know, we've all seen on social media people who've lost limbs as a consequence of sepsis. But there are the invisible but equally disabling after effects, the very severe fatigue syndromes and pain syndromes and so forth. And then cognitive. And again, that can range from relatively minor, some sort of slight issues with short-term memory loss, which are frustrating but perhaps not life-changing, through to severe cognitive dysfunction that affects about 17% of survivors. And if you think what that means to you or someone accessing this resource, that will probably mean that you can never return to work at your previous level of function. So this is a massive impact on people's well-being, but also their, their finances. Mm. And our charity who supports people affected deal with people who've lost their jobs as a consequence of sepsis. Well, but that would be the same whether they've been um, a patient in ICU or a patient that's managed to remain on a medical surgical ward. Well, we don't have perfect data on this, but a big survey that, that we did a couple of years ago now showed that although the incidence of very severe after effects was lower in people who never required intensive care, it is still there. And we've heard about this with COVID. You know, the majority of people who had minor symptoms at home don't really have a lot of long COVID, whereas people who are hospitalised and people who are in intensive care have very, very severe long COVID. It's very similar with sepsis. 
You don't have to go to intensive care to go po get post-sepsis syndrome, but you're more likely to get it if your illness is very severe. Okay, thank you. And that leaves me beautifully. You've just mentioned COVID-19. Um, relationship with COVID-19 sepsis? So this is a really interesting question. And in the academic literature, this has been very clear in the intensive care press, yeah. but less clear in any of the other press. Okay. COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection can cause sepsis. So most people in higher income countries who've died in intensive care have died with multi-organ failure. And the majority of them with no evidence of a bacterial superinfection. This is not a severe viral infection in those cases. Okay. They're developing shock, they're developing acute kidney injury, they're presenting with multi-organ failure. This is the host response to the underlying infection. It's a host response to SARS-CoV-2. This is viral sepsis. I've mentioned bacterial superinfection. Whenever anyone has a significant viral infection, their immune system takes a dip and that can set about the set of circumstances that can precipitate bacterial infection and then sepsis as a consequence of that. But there is a third thing, and that's for people who leave hospital having been seriously ill with COVID-19. There is early evidence, and it's of no surprise whatsoever, that there are increased risk of readmission with sepsis. So we know from a large study in the UK that around a third of people hospitalised with COVID-19 ended up re-hospitalised within a few months, but then a more granular study from North America showed that around 10% of patients re-hospitalised had either sepsis or pneumonia or both. So there is a risk and our learning from sepsis prior to COVID would suggest that that risk will persist for up to seven years after the original illness. So it's really important that we educate our patients who've been seriously ill with COVID-19 about the danger signs of sepsis. Um, could you just confirm for the audience the international guidelines for anyone that might be new to sepsis? Yeah, so I think we have to discuss that there's a balance between the need for international academic guidelines and then operational pragmatic guidelines that we can implement in a busy healthcare organisation. So the international standard of care is set by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which is represented by several of the international professional societies from around the world and since 2004 has been producing guidelines broadly every four years, updating them based on the best evidence. Okay, and how do you see them being implemented in practice? Well, it's really challenging, of course, because if you look at some of the um, surviving sepsis cancane guidelines, there are dozens of them. They exist primarily in the intensive care literature. It's very academically written and created. And of course, what needs to happen is translating those into resource-constrained healthcare systems, systems that are busy working with an undifferentiated patient caseload, many of whom will be deteriorating as a consequence of all manner of conditions, not just sepsis. Okay, and do you see that being able to be implemented outside of the ICU into the, the general areas of the hospital? Well, it certainly can, and we've seen experience of that in countries like the UK, in Ireland, in New South Wales, in New Zealand, in New York State. By operationalising guidance, and where we have the luxury by using electronic solutions to help us operationalise the guidance, we can really make progress. And this has to be a pan-hospital solution. Yeah. So what tools are available to assist? So we have multiple. Many countries have adopted condensed versions of the international academic guidelines. And in the UK and in, in fact, several other countries around the world, 
The treatment pathway is something we, de we developed at the UK Sepsis Trust called the Sepsis 6. It's not revolutionary. It's more a distillation of the international academic guidelines, mm -hmm. and it's a set of six simple tasks that often junior health professionals can deliver very rapidly. In terms of the recognition, of course, the international definition of sepsis is a change in SOFA score, but that's very difficult to measure at the bedside unless we have a fully electronicized hospital. So again, we have pragmatic solutions. And what we promote and what NICE promote in the UK is red flag sepsis, but we're also working with the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges to translate things further and make them based on the NEWS2 score, which we use here. Okay, and what's next for sepsis in healthcare? Well, I think what we have to understand is that at the moment we have a consensus definition for sepsis, and then we have a set of operational tools that also are based on a consensus um, opinion and we apply the same size fits all diagnostic criteria to people irrespective of their baseline functional state, their baseline physiology and their age. And we know that physiology changes with age. So we've got to move toward a better understanding of what sepsis looks like at an individual cohort level. Okay. What an 18 year old athlete with sepsis looks like, what an 88 year old with severe cardiac disease looks like, because the two will look very different. And the only way we can get to that is through pattern recognition, machine learning, if you like AI, based on big population data sets mm -hmm. to get a truly granular understanding. Okay, so what would be the one thing out of all of that that would be the most impactful part of that implementation hospital-wide? This is about precision medicine. This is about knowing what patient in which group needs urgent care at what particular time and being able to target that therapy to those patients. The added benefit of that is that we can vastly improve antimicrobial stewardship. We can deliver the broad spectrum antibiotics to the people who need them most urgently and wait in the people in whom we can afford to wait safely until we have more information and we can tailor the antibiotic. So Ron, um, could you just explain where people could get these tools and this e-learning etc from and where we should we direct them to? So I think we've got to look at context first. And I think it's important for health professionals to firstly see whether their hospital has a protocol or indeed their country or their regional state has a protocol. And if they do, then obviously they should abide by that protocol. If there's nothing, if there's no standardization of practice, then there's really two sources of information. One is the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines internationally, which are the academic publication. But the second is, of course, the UK Sepsis Trust. And this is not just for the UK. These tools are in use in some parts of around 30 countries worldwide. So they're available at sepsistrust.org under clinical, under the clinical tab. And there we have a suite of resources. People can choose whether they want to follow the original NICE guideline or whether they want to follow the newer Academy of Medical Royal Colleges guidelines. Okay. But they're just stuff you can pick off the shelf. They're very operational. If, for example, a nurse managing a busy emergency department without a protocol wanted something they could use today, yes. then they can just download it and start using it. And of course, there is associated e-learning to help to bring staff along on the journey. That's fantastic, Ron, and I'll make sure that the link is in the podcast notes. Where can health professionals go to find validated tools that we've previously spoken about? Well, of course, it will depend where they are. And many countries have, have accepted and disseminated national practices, which is where they should first look. But also, of course, some don't. And, and in those countries, we need to look at local hospital protocol. Yes. 
if, for example, you're in the UK, and apologies for keep talking about the UK, it's just where I practice, but if you're in the UK, at the moment, we're in a, a state of transition. So we have the NICE guidelines on sepsis that were released a few years ago with the national guideline NG51. And now we have the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges guidelines. And some organisations are choosing to follow the newer May 22 Academy of Medical Royal College guidelines, but some are waiting to see if NICE are going to change their recommendations in line with the Academy. So for health professionals within the UK accessing this resource, what you can do is go to our website and you can navigate your journey and the website at sepsistrust.org will ask you, are you looking for tools which satisfy the NICE guideline or the more recent Academy guideline? And there's also, we've just updated all the e-learning resources to support those tools. Great. So they're accessible, they're there to help, but of course the first point of call is, is there a national recommendation standard and has your hospital already made a decision on what you should do, in which case you should follow that. Okay, thank you, Ron. Sepsis education. I know the UK Sepsis Trust have done an awful lot around education. Um, why is it so important for healthcare professionals and the public that that education continues? So if we think of a condition like a stroke or a heart attack, there's usually a sentinel event. You know, somebody is relatively okay one moment and the next moment they're clutching their chest or their face droops or, or whatever. Sepsis is more insidious. It can also affect people at any age and with or without underlying health conditions. And so it's a system that requires alertness if we're going to get this right. Okay. We have to have the public who are aware of sepsis. They know that if they're deteriorating with an infection, they need to just ask, could it be sepsis? They know when to present to healthcare. And we need health professionals who are thinking sepsis. Because the signs can be quite subtle mm -hmm. in the majority, because sepsis can mimic many other conditions, and because the course of deterioration is gradual rather than sudden, Health professionals need to be aware of this and thinking it. But it's important to note that this has to be without detracting unduly from attention to other conditions. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ron. What could be the involvement of the government's healthcare systems and industry in the future? What does that look like? Well, I mean, that's a huge question, of course. It but, is. I mean, firstly, in terms of governments, I mean, I firmly believe that in some healthcare systems, electronic decision support tools are firmly inter integrated. In many countries, including the UK, it's very patchy. And while some hospitals will have adopted electronic solutions to help to automate recognition of sepsis and prompt health professionals to deliver urgent therapy, in other hospitals in those systems, that's simply not the case and they remain paper-based. And that brings about the opportunity for failure. So I think that's one thing, it's governments investing in electronic decision support tools, in investing in electronicisation of healthcare systems. Yeah. I think the second thing governments can do is to begin to commission for better healthcare in the space of infection. This is not just about sepsis, it's about everything. It's about infection prevention strategies, antimicrobial stewardship, it's about of course outbreak surveillance and pandemic preparedness, but it is about the rapid treatment of time-critical infections, including sepsis. And only by changing the way we view government policy to commission for that infections management solution holistically will we begin to achieve significant progress. Okay. And what about practically as, you know, I'm a nurse, I'm a ward-based nurse, what does that look like for me? How can I make sure that I'm 
educated and detecting anything that may be time critical. In terms of healthcare systems, this is about understanding what resources and facilities they have available, what training is available to staff, and making sure that we have a real board to ward or board to floor approach to this. If we're going to improve outcomes and sustain those improvements in a very prevalent and very time sensitive condition like sepsis, it's not going to happen unless the boards are engaged in the process, reporting happens to the boards, and boards can then strategize, prioritize, and invest in improving outcomes from this condition. Okay. In terms of industry, I think we need to get much better as health professionals at engaging with industry. The solutions are not going to be provided by health professionals. The solutions are going to be provided by partnership. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that we fix this sometimes broken relationship between the health professionals, between the commissioners of healthcare and industry in order that we can drive change together. Ron, do you think prioritising patients with sepsis and antimicrobial stewardship are compatible? Well, there's a, there's a sort of top level answer to that, but then there's the detail underneath it. I mean, the, the top level is, of course, you know, patients with sepsis are exactly the group of patients for whom we need to preserve our much needed antimicrobials. There is no doubt that antimicrobial resistance is an existential threat, probably hitting us hard over the coming decades, but certainly present in our hospitals now. So we have to, whenever we talk about sepsis, give due consideration to the impact on antimicrobial resistance. Now the reality is that where governments have looked at the impact of sepsis um, improvement programs on antimicrobial stewardship, mm -hmm. there has not been any harmful associations. So data from Ireland, data from New York State, data from England have all shown that it's possible to incentivize better sepsis care yeah. without a global increase in antibiotic prescriptions and without a detectable increase in the, in the same short time span in antimicrobial resistance itself. Okay. Now, in terms of the granular stuff, I think what's important is that we understand how poorly some systems function with regards to equipping health professionals with the tools to prescribing the right antibiotic. And I think we need to improve on that. There are huge numbers of novel diagnostics available to help us to better understand which pathogen may or may not be causing the infection. Now, some of them will look at the pathogen itself, some of them will help us decide whether it's bacterial, viral, or fungal, and so forth. But we don't have access to those point-of-care diagnostics in a near-patient, time-sensitive setting in most hospitals, certainly within the NHS. I'll give you one example, if I may. Please. Every year in England, we see around one million people admitted to hospital with pneumonia or their inpatient stays complicated by pneumonia. Every year in England, we see around 500 people with Legionella pneumonia, and NICE recommends that we treat everyone with severe pneumonia just in case it's Legionella. Okay. That would be fine if we could access those pretty quick tests very rapidly. But for example, my laboratory batches them twice a week. So I will send the test, start the extra antibiotic, but I won't get the information back typically for three days. And there are huge wins in antimicrobial resistance that can be made now by a better integration of point-of-care diagnostics into the patient pathway. Okay, thank you. And Ron, is there a final message that you'd like to leave for the audience today? I think the, the most important thing is sepsis is everyone's problem. It is not the case that sepsis is easy to recognise. We get that it's difficult. Mm. 
It's about exercising your clinical judgment when it's right to do so, but understanding that there's also a need for these operational tools to help you to make the right decisions and where you can seek support from electronic systems to help with decisions, then that can add an additional redundancy. No one wants to go to work and cause harm by failing to recognize a condition. No. We need to accept that as health professionals, we do have our own flaws and we need to make sure that we're working within a system, adopting all aspects of that system to help us deliver the best care to our patients. Ron, I just want to thank you for spending time with me today. Um, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure, very insightful, um, and um, just a, a big thank you, really. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Please make contact with any comments or feedback, and don't forget to look out for the next episode. Yeah.